Yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. When you think of that day, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Beer. It's the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, green beer in particular, but beer. And it's interesting because I think for many people, St. Patrick's Day is a day where you get to drink earlier and drink more. And you do it as a celebration. Um, it's why things like this, this little kind of short joke that I ran across, while kind of funny, it's extra funny because of the St. Patrick's Day Association. I went out drinking on St. Patrick's Day, so I took a bus home. That may not be a big deal to you, but I've never driven a bus before. <laughs> and part of the comedy in that is that we know that on St. Patrick's Day, that's what people do. What's interesting is that the man that we celebrate has virtually nothing to do with the way that we celebrate him. There's a total disconnect between those two things. Um, and in fact, the disconnect is big enough that in Ireland, even through a good part of the 20th century, pubs were actually closed on St. Patrick's Day to honor St. Patrick. I mean, it, it's, and, and we've taken this thing that, I mean, here's, here's a very brief snapshot of his life. St. Patrick was born, not in Ireland, but in Britain, sometime in the late 4th century. Raised in a Roman Christian home, but apparently didn't really take the faith until at the age 16 he was captured and put into slavery, well, he sheep herder, in Ireland for six years. During that period of time, through prayer, the faith that he was taught became real. And when he escaped, he had a vision from God that he needed to go back to Ireland and rescue all of these pagans. And so he went back to Ireland and had a massive impact on spreading Christianity and on strengthening believers who were there, which was a small minority at the time. So what this man is really known and celebrated for is sharing the gospel in a place where the gospel had not spread and strengthening those who knew Christ as a very small minority. And the way that we celebrate him is all over the world, non-believers drink a lot. How did that happen? Like, how do, how do you go from, I mean, do not those things seem very, very, I'll tell you what happened. If you are celebrating Lent this season by giving something up, one of the things that you really are supposed to do is not give that thing up on Sundays. Because Sundays is a celebration day. It's resurrection day. It's not a day for fasting. Well, St. Patrick's Day always falls during Lent. And so on that particular day, you loosen the restrictions of Lent. And you do some of the things that you wouldn't have done normally. Well, they got really loosened. <laughs> super loosened. And so even, I mean, think about this. The actual reason why it may have started even was good. 
It was a recognition of a celebration on this day of a great saint who had done a lot for the kingdom. But even that ends up getting twisted into something that now today, you didn't even have to believe or know Jesus. And you're still celebrating the death of a great saint who shared the gospel by drinking green beer. It's a weird disconnect. I bring all of this up partly because it was St. Patrick's Day yesterday and partly because last week I, um, I suggested, I argued maybe a little, that if we thought about the reason that Jesus came, many of us, myself included, might say it was because of my sin. My argument last week was it's the wrong starting point. If you start from that point, you will continually look back to your sin instead of what John 3.16 says, for God so loved that he gave, that God sent Jesus because of his love first and foremost, and that understanding that is really important as the starting point for dealing with our failures and our rebellion and our sin. This morning, I want to suggest that there is an equally wrong view at times of God the Father. And in fact, that view may be even more prevalent. That the view of God the Father, especially in relation to sin, is that of a stern parent. Is that of someone that is judgmental? That I need to figure out how I become good enough to get back into his graces. That when I mess up, when I know that I have rebelled against God, that it is very hard for me to accept his forgiveness without first appeasing him in some way. And I want you to think about what that means about your view and and my view of God the Father. Um, And this is age old. All the way back in the first century, There was already a heretical view that separated the Old Testament and the New Testament. That there was God the Father, who was the stern, judgmental, and then there was Jesus, who was the loving, sacrificial, kind, compassionate one. But I think that separation still happens unintentionally at times in the way that we live, think, that God is still the one, the Father is still the one that is harder who is judgmental. Now here's the thing about St. Patrick's Day. There is truth to relaxing the Lenten restrictions. Unfortunately, they threw off all fetters and just went totally opposite direction. There is truth when you read through the scriptures that God the Father, there is some judgment there. Especially read through the Old Testament. There are some times where God does judge. Problem is, that's the only part of God the Father that often gets read, is the judgment side. What I want to share today is the heart of God the Father. And I want to say that when we see him as the stern parent, when we see him as how do I appease God, How do I do the things that will make it right? We are missing what God has already done, which means we're missing who God already is. 
If you would, open your Bible to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're starting in verse 31. Here is my primary point. God the Father desires relationship more than judgment. God the Father desires relationship more than judgment. Here's how Jeremiah 31, 31 begins. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. When you think covenant, think relationship. The covenant was the way in which God the Father would relate to his people. After he had rescued them, he set out certain things. We have these covenants We have quite a few of them, some of them more formal than others. You have a covenant with your kids. There's a certain way that you expect as a parent to relate to your kids and your kids to relate to you. There are unspoken rules, and there are, of course, spoken rules. You have a covenant with your employer. There's certain things that are expected, and you're expected to act in a certain way. You have a covenant with your neighbors, Part of the reason that you get so upset sometimes when your neighbor acts in a certain way is because there's an unspoken covenant that you should mow your dang lawn, right? And you should not be throwing your beer cans over the fence into my yard, even if it is St. Patrick's Day, unless you invite me to be a part of the green beer. But there's unspoken covenants that we have, relationships, and maybe the most formal that we have, the one that is closest to this, and the one that is actually utilized as the illustration is the husband-wife. That covenant between husband and wife, where certain things are promised one to the other, and to to uphold that relationship until death do you part. And you'll see in a moment, God calls himself husband to Israel. It's that relationship in particular that may be closest to the way God relates to his people. But the covenant that Moses established with the people was a relational covenant. It was not primarily, here are a bunch of rules, you go do these things. It was about how to relate to God. As God, you do these things, and I will do these things, and we will relate together. That was the covenant. However, Something went terribly wrong for generation after generation after generation. It just kept happening. We are, at this point when we're reading Jeremiah, we are anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 years removed from when the covenant was given. And if you read the history of Israel up to this point, you will see over and over and over and over again, they will break their side Their relational side, they will just keep breaking it. They will spit in God's face over and over again. And so it leads them to this point where they are in exile. Right now, Babylon has come in. They have decimated it. They have taken the people, and they are no longer in the land, and they are in exile. And here's what God says. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Do you hear that language? He initiated. Father says, I am the one who rescued them. I took them by the hand. Here's the gentleness. Here's the intimacy of the language. I took them by the hand and I pulled them out. I was a husband to them. Now just imagine a perfect marital relationship where you don't have the fights or the distrust or the the things that hurt one another, the perfect marital relationship where both people, husband and wife, are absolutely fulfilling their vows 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That is what God offered to Israel. I am your husband, and I will treat you exactly as I have said always. God did all of that. They just turned on him. They said, no, I want my way. I don't care what you want, I want my way. They said, this over here looks better than what you are offering me over here. And they turned from God. They rebelled against him and went their own way. That's where we're at in this point. Now, here's the thing that I think should happen. I believe verse 33 should read something like this. Never mind. I'm not giving you a new relationship. I have tried this over and over again. I have done everything to care for you. I've given you land. I've given you protection. I've given you my love. I've rescued you from all the various peoples who have come in. I just keep serving you, and you just keep turning on me. Have you ever gotten to the point where you just decide it's time to quit. Um, It happens to me, or used to happen a lot, not as much anymore, when I play games and I'm losing. And it's unfair because the dice are against me. They have to be, right? Or the hands that I keep getting dealt, there's no way I can keep getting those hands. Nobody else is getting them, I'm getting them. And at some point, it's like, I'm done. Tired of this, quitting. I feel as though God is absolutely within his right to just go, I'm done. And yet, he doesn't do that. I read this really beautiful story. Um, This man, uh, uh, Timothy Johnson, I think is his name, wrote a book Um, about grace and about God, and and he gives this illustration in the book about his middle daughter. Um, His middle daughter is adopted, and this is her second adoptive family. So she's already been through one, and she was with that family for a few years, and for various reasons didn't work, and so now they have adopted her. And they had decided as a family they were going to go to Disney World. And what he learned is that his daughter that they had adopted that previous family had made a couple of Disney World trips. But when they went to Disney World, they would only take their biological children. They would leave the adoptive daughter with a family friend when they went to Disney World. 
And the adoptive daughter blamed herself, that she must have done some things wrong. That's why they would leave her. Why else would they leave her? And so when he learned this, he's like, all right, we're going to make this wonderful trip. And yet leading up to the trip, for a good month going into this, she started acting out. He was describing how she would steal food from the kitchen pantry, things that she could have asked for. She would take them and not tell them. She started lying to them. She started insulting her other siblings, mostly whispered things, but very hurtful things she was saying. And eventually, he took his daughter, pulled her over onto his lap, and this is what she said. I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? And this is his reflection. The thought hadn't crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit, in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. Now parents, how many times have we taken that approach? I mean, and that is one approach. God had been taking a particular approach with his people and they had been failing it over and over again. And it's their fault. I'm not saying it's the adoptive daughter's fault. It was Israel's fault. And you know what? It is my fault every time I rebel against God. Every time I choose my own way, every time I sin, every time I turn from what my loving Father has offered, that is on me. But that response is exactly the response. I mean, honestly, God could have said that to Israel. All right, I got you next up. If you guys don't start behaving better, you're going to stay here. You're going to remain in Babylon for the rest of your existence without a land. Get it together. And he had every right to do it. And yet, here was this father's response. By God's grace... I didn't say that to her, and I've known that too. Have you ever made the right decision with your kid in a tough moment, and you got done, and you went, I don't even know how I did that. Like, that was just not, that's not what I wanted to say, that's not how I usually am, and oh my goodness, the grace of God. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, her eyes tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. God has decided the exact same thing. Instead of coming to Israel as the stern, judgmental parent who says, you all messed up, get it right, or I'm leaving you here. Figure out why you're doing what you're doing and get it right. He says, I'm going to make a new relationship. 
I'm going to do something different because I desire relationship more than judgment, even when judgment is deserved in this moment. And what I'm about to read, this is to everybody in this room. Every time you are failing God and you begin to go, God the Father is pointing the finger and telling me, get it right, or things aren't going to go well with you. Every time you think, well, as long as I can make up for this, as long as I can do whatever penance that thing is, then, then God will let me go to Disney World. God is not saying that. Now, he may be saying there are consequences to your actions because he loves us and disciplines his children, but he is also saying, you're part of the family. I'm not going to treat you like a stranger. I'm not going to treat you like, like I am some distant father that cares nothing for his children. I just care about order in my home. As long as everything is clean, as long as you do your chores, things are good. That's not our God. Our God came right down in the midst of our messy room to help us clean it up. That's our God. And so this is what he says to them. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. You all know what the law is, right? It's the two tablets that were written on that are external from us. We, inside, want one thing. Then there's this external thing over here that we're fighting against. He says, that won't be the case anymore. Instead of my law, instead of my way being written on tablets, I'm going to write it inside of them so that there will actually be a part of them that wants to live a certain way. They will want to do what I'm desiring of them. They will want to be like me because I'm going to put it in them, not an external force, but an internal reality. And because of that, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And there's two things in there. Number one is this relationship that God is making, there's nobody excluded. It's offered to everybody. Let me ask you, have you ever felt excluded? For any number of reasons. Have you ever felt not smart enough? Not athletic enough? You don't have enough connections to get into a certain place. Have you ever felt excluded? You're different from some other people, and they're getting more than what you are getting. When it comes to our Father, none of that matters. Doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter where you came from, what background, doesn't matter any of that. None of that matters. Every single person from the greatest to the least is being offered this relationship. And in this relationship, he says, they will know the Lord. 
And I want to read to help interpret that. This is Jeremiah 22. I want to read a couple of verses. And just hear this. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is this, to, sorry, is not this to know me? Here's the distinction between the old and the new, the old relationship and the new relationship. In the old, there was an external law that everybody kind of fought to try to do these rules. In the new, there is an internal reality that changes our desires so that we can be more like him. Knowing God is not just an intellectual assent that, yes, there's a God, or there's a God who's kind of like this. Knowing God is when we are acting like him, and then we can go, that is what God is like. That moment that maybe you, uh, somebody deserved something, um, maybe there was a moment where you wanted something you knew wasn't right, um, and, and in either case, maybe there was a moment when you, you really wanted to get onto your kids, but that grace came in and you acted in a different way. In those moments, you are knowing God. You are knowing what he's really like, knowing who he is, knowing his character. And he says, from the least to the greatest, all can know me now. There's not a lot of writings by St. Patrick, but one of them, in his writing, he begins it like this. My name is Patrick. I'm a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. Uh, more than once in his writings, he'll reference the fact that he has very little education and that people look down on him for it. Um, Late in life, I recognized my failings, and so I turned with all my heart to the Lord my God. And he looked down on my lowliness, and he had mercy on my youthful ignorance. He guarded me before I even knew him, and before I came to wisdom, could distinguish, and I could distinguish good from evil. He protected me and consoled me as a father does a son. It's all the language that we're hearing in this. That is why I cannot be silent. Notice, he did not go to Ireland to earn something from God. He did not go to Ireland because there were a lot of rules and he felt like he had to do the rules. It's because he knew what God was doing with and in him and he's like, I can do nothing else. I want to be like him. And so he says, um, I, th that is why I could not be silent um, nor would a good be good to do so about such great blessings, such a gift that God so kindly bestowed. This is how we can repay such blessings when our lives change and we come to know God. But it's in the change that we're coming to know him because the knowledge is experiential. It's the reason that Jesus talks about if you want to know the truth, the truth will set you free. First, you have to be my disciples. It's not just an external truth that you can kind of, okay, well, I get that. 
It's something you live. And as you're living it, you know God in a way that you can't know him otherwise. That's what Patrick came to understand in this. Turn back and we end with this. The Jeremiah 33, sorry, Jeremiah 31. Here's why all this could happen. Second part of verse 34. Um, For, um, and that's a particle in Hebrew, and it references all the way back to verse 31. Everything is in light of this. You see, there was a wall standing between God and what he wanted to do with his people. Sin. And so he says, for I will forgive their iniquity. I think we all get that to some degree. I think we basically get the idea that God has forgiven us. It's the second part of the sentence that I think we struggle with. And I think we struggle with it partly because of our view of God. Not as the God who wants relationship, but the God who was going to judge us first And if we get it right, we'll get the relationship. Here's the second part. And I will remember their sin no more. It's not just that God says, I am not going to make you make up for all of the things you've done against me. It's that he also says, I'm not going to hold them over your head. And that is the part that I think we struggle with when it comes to God. I think to some degree we can go, all right, I'm forgiven, and yet, no, there is no and yet. I will remember them no more. God's not holding them over our heads. We are. We are holding something over our own heads that God is not. I will remember them no more. I just read this article, y'all may know or many of you may know that Toys R Us filed bankruptcy, but recently they are also liquidating all of their assets. And so there was an article on if you happen to have a Toys R Us gift card, you better go use it because there's going to come a point where there are no more assets. Like even if you've got the card, it's worthless because there's nothing to buy. It's all gone. Too many of us are holding this card that's got all of our sin on it, and God is going, I don't remember that. Maybe you should let it go. If I'm not holding you accountable for it right now, again, consequences, yes. Discipline at times in your life, yes. But no change in relationship. And no thought that the discipline, get this, The discipline is not a penance. When, as a parent, I appropriately send my child to their room, it should not be to make up for what the child did. It is so the child will recognize that what they did was wrong and disrupts the family, and I want them to learn the lesson. But it should not be, yeah, if you get this, I'll feel better because you've now been punished. Now, in my flesh, that is exactly how I feel sometimes. But it is not how God operates. 
The discipline in our lives is from a loving father who said, you guys have completely messed up over and over again, and yet I want relationship with you so much, I will do what it takes. I will go so far as to give my son to make this relationship. And you know what I will ask of you? Just come into relationship with me. There's no list. There's no, there's no things you got to check off. Okay, I did the five things. Finally, God can accept me. And every time I screw up, I've got another checklist, and i got to go through those. I will remember their sins no more. And the card that you are holding that you have chalked up with your $200,000, $200,000 worth of sin that you're still holding on to, there are no assets to do anything with that because God has already liquidated all of it. It's gone. Go burn the card. I thought this was beautiful. I'd like to say that my daughter's behaviors grew better after that moment. Back to Timothy. After that moment of that beautiful thing, I mean, we all heard it, we all felt it, we all went, oh. You know, a few of you, your, your eyes rimmed with tears a little bit. You're part of this family. You're going. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney. Um, we had overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines. We mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room, after the first day, a different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, I held her, and I asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That is how we're called to live. That is how our God feels about us all the time because we are his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to better understand and embrace and know who you are. And we know that part of that is the way that we live, that as we live into your character, we understand you more and more. But God, we need your grace. We need your spirit to do what we are incapable of doing, to help us know we don't get it because we're good. We get it because we're yours, because you are the one that desired relationship and did whatever it took. Lord, help us to live out of that. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.